It's Monday, April 13th. We're studying 2 Peter. We're still in 2 Peter chapter 1. And let's look a little bit here at the context and remember where we're at. We've reached actually verse 11, the end of this thought. So let's pick it up here. You might remember the importance of making every effort. That's been a focus of this entire section, knowing that this is about sanctification, the exertion of our effort in adding to our faith or supplementing our faith. And then we dealt with all the things, virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfast and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Now, if these qualities are yours and increasing, there again, the reminder, this is sanctification. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities, right? It's near, so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, verse 10, brothers says, uh, be all the more diligent. This is about our focus, our attention, our prioritization of this, to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these things, again, there's another idea, practice these qualities, that continuing effort, for in this way you'll be, uh, you'll never fall. For in this way, here's our passage today, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot to untangle here. Now, I just want to go back in this passage to remind us, if we're going to understand this phrase right here, in this way, we need to be able to know what we're talking about. So let's look back at the immediate preceding verse. It says, uh, if you practice these qualities. So we know that in this way means if you're practicing these things, this list of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and affection and love. Okay, look up now at the beginning of the verse. It says, uh, if you're all the more diligent. So we know this is about, if, if we're doing this, seeing these in this way, if we're seeing these qualities being practiced, if you're diligent about those qualities, look up at verse number eight. This has been the theme. Uh, if they are these qualities are yours and increasing, so that's what we're dealing with here. And of course, all the way back up to the beginning in verse 5, if you're making every effort. So the theme is undeniable in this passage, that we're making every effort, we're increasing in these qualities, that we're diligent about them, that we're practicing them. Well, in this way, all of that work and effort that we are expending as God's grace, of course, fuels us, as God's energy supplies what we need. But as we're moving through this with a diligent, prioritized effort in our sanctification, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an interest, entrance into the eternal kingdom. So the progress by diligent effort and by the guidance of what the Bible says about things like virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. So we know what we're aiming at, the template of godliness here. There's going to be something here richly provided. Now I want you to look at this verse here, this, this word provided right here. Uh, provided. Um, and, and of course, I guess to get the whole of this Greek word, we need this phrase, uh, will be, we'll talk about richly in a second, but will be provided. That is a future uh, passive verb. That this is something that is going to be provided. This is not like when you're playing a video game, which I don't, but if you are, you know, go, I, remember, I used to when I was a kid and, and I remember going through the levels and it's like, you've earned this and you've opened this, you know, level or you've opened this gate or you've gotten through this thing. Uh, I like the way some translations, even the Phillips translation, which sometimes is helpful to see how J.B. Phillips kind of unpacks these ideas. And so often he's right about giving uh, kind of some breadth to it. But the Phillips translation, I wrote it down, says, God will open wide to you the gates, right? It's like the, the practice of these things is evident that you're building on your faith. The faith is there, and the faith then 
is the thing, as we know, we're saved by grace and through the mechanism, as we see it, humanly speaking, of our faith that has been granted to us as a gift of God, that opens up this gate for us. We opens up this eternal kingdom. So this is something that God is doing. You could look at a passage like this if you read this in context and say, for in this way, you'll be richly provided an interest into the kingdom. It's like, well, do all these things and you'll earn your entrance into the kingdom, right? You will open up the gates for yourself. You will open up the key to eternal life. But it's not like, uh, you know, some kind of banner on a video game that you've earned your way into this next level. This is a, a clear future passive where God is opening up to you the um, the entrance. He is doing it. God is providing. It's still all of God's grace to provide for you entrance into the eternal kingdom. It's important that we see the future passive verb reminds us that it is not earned. So what does it do, though? Well, there are some words here that are helpful. Uh, it, it, it's richly provided this idea of richly provided. I know I've made a mess of this page here, but the concept of it being richly provided is something that gives us a sense that it brings us the assurance, and we've dealt with this throughout this paragraph, that there's a uh, an assurance that we have. It's richly provided in the sense that we know we're in. We know that God has us and has granted us this biblical faith. We have a sense of that, and it's richly provided. We know that the, the gate is open. We know we're on the narrow path. We know we're going through the small gate that few find. We have a sense of of that. It's richly provided for us. Uh, it's there in a large measure, in a great way, in an undeniable way, because we've seen this uh, kind of big entrance provided for us because of the evidence that we've seen that gives us a confident assurance that we are saved. And there's no denying that in Scripture, that though salvation is all of grace, your works, your effort, your progress, the things that God is doing in your life to show this new creation, where the old things pass away, new things come, as he's providing you all of the ability to do this, and as you're giving yourself to it. We've looked at those words, gymnazo, like in a gymnasium, working it out, agonizomai. We're working hard. We're agonizing in it. We're moving forward. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We're making progress in the Christian life. We're saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. That gives us a sense that we are assured and we're in. It's a it's it's a sense of having the, 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 the non-doubting heart that we know that we have this entrance into the kingdom couple of passages I wanted you to look at here. And and again, here is the characteristic of a man or a woman of faith from Hebrews chapter 11 that understand that it's about God, it's about the next world, it's about pleasing him, our creator, our judge, our king. And it talks about their faith and the evidence of their faith. And notice that's what Hebrews 11 really is all about, the evidence and fruitfulness of faith. Imperfect people, of course. I remember some guy getting really mad at me in a sermon when I preached about these heroes of the faith and, and mocked me like, well, what kind of heroes are they? They're all failures. Well, of course, they're all imperfect vessels, but conquering kingdoms, shutting the mountains of lions, you know, conquering the flames. I mean, Daniel, Noah, uh, Abraham, all the people we think of that were men and women of faith in the scripture, uh, man, you know, that's that's uh, an expression of their relationship with God that should be hailed, which of course is what Hebrews 11 is all about. The critic didn't quite, I don't think, catch that. Nevertheless, their faith, uh, they kept doing this even though they didn't receive the things that were promised, verse 13 says, but they greeted them from afar. That's what faith does. They keep striving toward where they're heading having acknowledged that they were and they were willing to live as strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus, they speak like that. They're willing to call themselves strangers and exiles. They make it clear, and that's the thing, they make it clear to themselves and even to other people that they're seeking a homeland and it's not this world. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, very specific examples in the context of the patriarchs could have left the promised land and you know, not gone there as God told them to, Abraham in particular. 
they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, and here's the thing we're hailing in this text, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Okay. Therefore, I just want to show you this idea here. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for God has prepared a city for them. This right here, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Uh, there's a sense in which that's a relative concept. If we are children of God, we are children of God. If we have faith, we have faith. If God has granted us the ability of repentance and faith, we have that. But there's a sense in which I don't want God to be ashamed that I call him my God. And that is evidenced through the things in this passage that he's these people are bearing fruit in. They're willing to say no to the current pressures of their culture and be willing to serve a God and be citizens of a king uh, and a kingdom that's not of this earth. And I just, that concept of being not ashamed to be called their God, there's a inverse of that, right? I, I know that there are times in our Christian life where you know and I know the things that we're doing currently at a particular time, God is ashamed that we're sitting there then turning around and saying, well, oh yeah, God is my God. I think of the passage in uh, James that talks about the tongue and saying, you know, we're, we're at one minute in church when we're singing worship and, and blessings to God. We're giving this great word to God about how great he is and praising him. And then we turn around and we tear down people that we shouldn't. And uh, we say things to our brothers and sisters in Christ that are damaging. So we can please the Lord. And I guess I want to make that emphasis here in the sense that you can ask yourself, how ashamed is God right now? Or how unashamed is God right now to be called my God? And how am I pleasing him? Look at this passage. I think we've quoted it in this study so far, but good to revisit it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we're talking about Christians here. We ask you and urge you, those are strong words, that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk, right, how you're supposed to live your life, to please God, that's how you should live, which means there are times when you can do something and your pattern of behavior today can be displeasing to God, even though you are a brother in Christ. Just as you were doing, and he's praising them, clearly the Thessalonians are doing well. He said, but here's the thing, I want you to do so more and more. And there's the, there's the, really the premise of what we have going on in 2 Peter chapter 1, to do this more and more, to make progress, to be more diligent, to work at seeing this happen in our lives in increasing measure. And then, of course, it's all based on the instructions. It's got to be biblically informed that we gave you through Jesus Christ. We know what God's Word says, and then we work hard to please Him in doing those things. And so this passage is about that sense of having a richly provided entrance the sense that we have a sense of, of confidence and even that we're pleasing God in greater measure, that he's not ashamed of us. And then just a note or two about quickly the eternal kingdom. Our passage talks about the fact we have an entrance into an eternal kingdom. Of course, the concept of kingdom here, uh, look at this passage in Luke chapter 1. You've got to remember, and I say this often, I, I, it bears repeating though, the Christian life is not about the here and now. It's about what was promised when Christ came, and there's a huge gap between the first and second coming, which Peter's going to talk about in chapter 3 in 2 Peter. But look at this text here. When Christ was born, this child in Mary's womb, she's going to bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus, Yeshua, or Joshua, Savior, the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, which is an idea of the Messiahship of Christ. And the Lord God, his Father, will give to him the throne of his father, small f here, David, the earthly covenant of David. When uh, 2 Samuel 7, the idea of God promising him an heir to sit on the throne forever. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And here's the idea, forever. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. Just remember, the whole point of the Christian life is not for you to get through 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, kind of keeping your nose clean, staying out of trouble. It's about you getting your 
heart aligned with the God of the universe, making progress in storing up treasure in heaven and waiting for and praying for the coming of the kingdom of God. And that is a kingdom that will have no end. Just a great concept here. And I quote this one all the time at least parts of this chapter 11, when seventh angel, this is Revelation chapter 11, blew his trumpet, loud voices in heaven, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign. I just want to remind you, this is where we're headed, a never-ending forever and ever reality, eternal citizens in an eternal kingdom. 24 elders there, representing, I think, the Old and New Testament leadership, sat on their thrones. They fell on their faces before uh, God. They worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And look at this phrase, who is and who was right? He's always been. You've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. And this is what we're looking forward to. Nations rage, wrath has come for the time to judge the, uh, time for the dead to be judged and rewarding your servants, right? And the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small, that's us, right? And great, a lot of heroes in the Bible for destroying and for destroying the destroyers of the earth, which contextually is about all that's going on here and the sin that's coming on the world. Uh, the point uh, the judgment that's coming on the world. The point is, I just want us to remember that what we're looking for is the assurance as we make progress in the Christian life about the then and there, that our hope is set on eternity, an eternal kingdom. And then lastly, uh, this phrase here, it's the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I just thought I'd put these up on the screen for you. Uh, first, 2 Peter 1, 11, 2, 20, 3, 2, and 3, 18. And if you've ever used this phrase right here, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, uh, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you've ever used this, Lord and Savior, you've seen it in songs, right? You've seen it in various places, Lord and Savior. This is the only combination of these words in the Bible. Um, this is the expression of the titles of the King. He's Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Anointed One. He's the Lord, he's the King. Uh, he's in charge. He has all regal authority. He's the one who is to be uh, obeyed. And then, of course, he's the Savior, uh, which always in Scripture, when the Old Testament uh, references to the Lord is using the word Savior, it's often referring back to the um, temporal uh, freedom out of slavery in Egypt. And that concept is redemption. He's the redeemer. He takes us out of slavery. He frees us from our bondage. And of course, all of that is just a type of the bondage that we're in in sin. Jesus said, if you sin, you're a slave of sin. And Jesus came to free us from that. Everyone uh, is freed by the Son, right? He's free indeed. And the idea of Savior is that we trust Him. Lord, that we obey Him. Savior, that we trust Him. But I just thought it was of interest as long as we're going through Second Peter. This is the only book that we see this phrase here, Lord and Savior, that combination. So the next time you use the phrase Lord and Savior, if you do, and we all do, it seems at some point, it's all coming from the pen uh, guided by God's spirit uh, from Peter. That was his stylistic reference here uh, to Jesus Christ, the one he followed and served. So there you go, verse number 11 of 2 Peter chapter one. And tomorrow we'll get into verse number 12. It's been great to be with you. So be sure to subscribe and comment, and we'll be back with you tomorrow to continue our study through 2 Peter.